Seafield podcast listeners, and welcome to our latest edition. We are super excited to welcome Gina Laird today from the Samaritan Woman. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you. So, and we're going to tackle uh, the tough issue of sex trafficking and its relationship to human trafficking and really try and think about where those things intersect with the maternity housing world. So um, we're really grateful to that for your expertise in this area. I had the joy of serving as a part of a panel at a conference with Jean, and she's a powerhouse. So definitely grateful that you're here. Would you mind just introducing yourself a bit and your program? Be glad to. Yeah. So I'm Jean Allard, and I herald from Baltimore, Maryland, out on the East Coast. And uh, about 13 years ago, the Lord led me to leave everything behind, um, my internet consulting life, to start a restorative care facility for victims of sex trafficking. So I went from internet consultant to direct service provider. So I want you to, I want your listeners to hear that was a wild leap of faith. And, um, and over the last 12, 13 years, uh, I would have to say that my primary schooling has come from the women themselves. What they have taught us about the issue of domestic sex trafficking. Um, our program provides long-term restorative care to women who've been victimized in this way and our referral bases across the country. So we have seen victims from 22 different states uh, over the last um, 12 years and anywhere from ages um, 16 to 49. And so it's a pretty wide swath. Um, it's been nonstop learning, crying, gnashing of teeth, all of those things. Um, but it, but it's also been incredibly rewarding uh, because we believe that we can now speak with some credibility and authority on their behalf uh, for many of the women who still remain voiceless. Yeah, I love the phrase restorative care program. Can you share maybe why you chose that over, I don't know, any of the other terms that are kind of out in the housing world? Yeah, you know, what's interesting is when, when I started this, uh, there was no baseline. There was nobody I could turn to to say, what does this look like? Give me a model. There's no Still, there's no degree program in doing this kind of care. It's just now beginning to hit universities. And so largely our experience has been one of invention. And we chose restorative because that's what we wanted to stay focused on the goal. Uh, essentially, if you consider sort of to restore the years the locust have eaten. And so that keeps us fixed on the goal. We didn't want to call this maybe perhaps by some of the other terms. And I don't come from a clinical background, so I didn't incorporate any of that language. But over time, we have found that that language has been well adopted nationally. There's a continuum of care that's beginning to form for victims of sex trafficking. If you think of there are several points of intervention with an exploited person. And so you might have emergency care, which may happen at point of rescue or escape uh, or apprehension by law enforcement. Um, there's a phase that we refer to as stabilization, which is, if you know anything about the stages of change, that's largely a very ambivalent uh, pre-contemplation stage where generally takes about 90 days where the women have kind of a foot in both worlds. And then as she begins to make the decision and begin to believe that change is possible, she moves more into the restorative care, which is the long-term care for us. It We started at two years, but now we've got women that have been with us over five years. And then recently we gra added graduate care, which after learning that these women have come from all over the United States and they are essentially leaving their past behind geographically as well as emotionally um, and starting a whole new life that they still need support as they do independent living and social reentry. 
So our graduate program does not have an upper limit for women. And so it's, it's long-term care. Um, we kind of say for as long as it takes. So are all four of those pieces, emergency care, stabilization, restorative care, and graduate care, are those happening by different organizations or are those different phases within your program? Across the United States, they're, ha- they're being served by different organizations. So you may have organizations like Salvation Army, uh, which would might offer a safe house for that emergency kind of care. Um, what we're seeing now is that homeless shelters and domestic violence shelters are seeing an overlap of this population. And so they are de facto doing um, that emergency level of care. Samaritan Women specifically does stabilization, restorative, and graduate. We don't do emergency care. So our referrals generally come from or will be profiled by a woman who is already somewhere else. What I mean by that is she might already be in police custody. She might already be in jail. She might already be at a homeless shelter. um, She might be at a hospital. And so there is, and then the referral is is made to us. Really, what's dependent upon is her decision to want to go into a program. No, thanks. That, that clarifies. And I think similar to what you were saying about domestic violence shelters, maternity homes are really finding themselves, you know, that they are encountering women. Um, as we learn more about sex trafficking, kind of an, there's more awareness that both clients we have served and are serving have had those experiences. So um, we're in that same boat, I think, of, of other people who are encountering women and then trying to figure out how best to serve them, which is part of part of the, this joy of this conversation. So can you give us just a sense of the scope um, of human trafficking? I, I know yeah, you work both within your particular program, but also are doing work nationally. Can you give us just a, a quick overview of kind of what's happening? You know, it's an elusive, if you're looking for a number, that's an elusive response yeah. because this is the kind of crime that happens under the radar and in the dark. And so it's very, very difficult to say. Some folks are saying somewhere between 100,000 to 300,000 victims, uh, child victims, across the United States. Adult victims generally are not being counted. They unfortunately sort of blend into society. And so not so flippantly, you know, we say that there's not a census for this problem. And so that's very difficult. But what we know to be true is there have been human trafficking cases identified in every state in the United States. There are task forces in almost every state. There are Homeland Security and FBI offices dealing with trafficking across the United States, rescue and restore coalitions, like I say, state level task forces. So we know it's a problem. We're coming up on the 20th anniversary of the federal legislation against trafficking and looking at, you know, what progress we have made. And I would say that largely the progress has been in the realm of awareness. I mean, the mere fact that Uh, you would consider this a topic shows that you're aware of the fact that it's an issue and within the intersection of maternity homes, you know, it's so awareness has been achieved. Now we're moving into the next realm of response. So now we're aware. Now what are we going to do? And I think that's the big shift that's happening across the United States right now is we are looking for a thoughtful and strategic response to the problem. Do you have any sense of the availability of beds? Um, specifically for women coming out of trafficking? Yes, that is, that's our sweet spot. That's largely what our organization focuses our research work on is the shelter landscape. And so we are keenly focused on the residential options, whether that's short-term residential or long-term residential. And as of 
last month, so it's November 2019. So as of October of 2019, we have identified 103 open and actively serving um, residential programs that are specializing in victims of trafficking. So let me be clear, that would not be inclusive of a maternity home that sees this clientele or a DV shelter that sees this clientele, just counting those programs that are saying we are specifically serving exploited persons. So 103 shelter programs equates to just under a thousand beds across the United States. So we just look at the comparison and we say upwards of 300,000 victims, about a thousand beds. We've also identified that there are 13 states with no shelter program and 10 states with only one. So we have a long way to go to achieve our vision, which is that any survivor anywhere in the United States would at least have access to qualified compassionate care. And so what we're working on is trying to close the gap so that in those areas of greatest need, there are at least options for survivors. Are those homes uh, networked in some formal way? If a maternity home wants to try and find a mom a placement in her area, in their area, are they their place where all that information is in one gathered spot? Well, certainly we keep our list. And if any of your listeners want to know if they're in Kansas and they want to know who's who's in my area, um, they can certainly reach out to us and we would be glad to share that information. There's also an emerging organization called the National Trafficking Sheltered Alliance, which is a professional association for people who are involved in sheltering trafficked persons. And that organization is, is a membership-based organization that is um, that also has a list. Ours is not membership-based. We're just trying to get a sense of what, who's out there. There's also the Polaris Project, which has a list of all different types of service providers that may or may not include residential. No, thanks. So for our listeners, the, the, the real issue, the real rub, I guess, is this kind of idea of what should a maternity home be doing and what, you know, what should the real, the better option be to get them placed in a specialized um, program like yourselves. I don't know if your industry has a sense of that. I mean, are you full all the time and it's better that the women are off the street and in a stable home and, you know, with some kind of basic healing principles at play? Or is your thought really that the the women need to be served by a, a specialized program? I mean, I think the jury is out on that. Um, certainly think more research needs to be done. Um, there are some folks who are saying that the uh, human trafficking population and the domestic violence population don't commingle well. There are some agencies that are claiming great success. Um, I think very little study has been done in the maternity home sector. And so I think there's opportunity for more work to be done. I'm excited about this what we're doing today because I think it will open the door to more conversations. And I would strongly encourage your listeners um, to reach out to any trafficking provider in their area to see what partnerships are possible. You know, I, I can make a couple of comments about capacity and whatnot. We did a study back in 2017 of the residential programs across the United States and found that they were hovering around just over a 50% capacity. And so that means that there's beds available. Now, that might be a struggle because in one respect, we're talking about these outrageous statistics that say there are all these victims and so few beds, but yet the beds are available are not 100% filled. As we've tried to understand that better, we have to 
also understand that there is much happening within these individuals, predominantly females, that make them incredibly ambivalent about care, about restoration, about a new life. And so our population, somewhat similar to DV, has a lot of recidivism. They will go back to their exploiter again and again. We don't yet have the statistics like the DV world does that says seven times, but we know that 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 trauma bond has a tremendous pull on these women. And then as it relates to this sector, if that exploited person has a child with that, you know, trafficker, uh, it's even more of a, of a stronghold. And so we see a lot of recidivism, a lot of cycling through this ambivalence about care and separation from exploitation into independence. So it's very fluid. It's very dynamic. I think one of the things that, you know, your folks would would look for, and there are a number of really good screening tools, is certainly um, cycles of abuse, the bond to that particular exploiter or or trafficker or person in their life. So I think that that what a a maternity home might encounter, and I want to frame it this way, I think that maternity homes play an incredibly valuable role in the bookends of what we see. So let me speak just within the terms of Samaritan women. We have, over the last 12 years, um, identified that about 20% of our service population have had abortions. About 48% of them have had children, um, usually 2.2 children. 16% of our population have had miscarriages. So certainly maternal health and pregnancy ranks high in this population. Whether or not they've intersected with a maternity home, um, that would seem to be the natural go-to as long as they know you're available. What I want to put forward, though, that I think you might find interesting is that we've also been studying what happens to our women after our leaving our program. And on average, a woman is with us about 18 to 26 months. It is remarkable to me, this is the data that we gathered as a result of uh, just this year, that 22% of our women will get pregnant within four months of leaving the program. I think there's a lot going on there. I think that they immediately gravitate towards a relationship, that Mm -hmm. they have been away from relationship for a couple of years, uh, that they haven't really maybe solidified in being an autonomous person, you know, in just two years. And so that uh, connection to another, certainly we are designed to want to be together. And so we see a high pregnancy rate after they've left uh, a program like ours. We don't consider that a failure. We consider that an opportunity to work together because if maternity homes could come alongside them and be supportive, if crisis pregnancy organizations could come alongside them and be supportive, I think what we're able to equip them with alongside what you all are able to do just makes really a a nice matrix of services that are available. I think the shortcoming is most of our women don't know that organizations like us and organizations like you even exist. Yeah, no, we definitely encounter that too. Pregnancy centers are a big way in which we encounter women. Um, And I know pregnancy centers are kind of growing in their familiarity too with the trafficking work. 
But that, I mean, really all that whole, everything you just said kind of blows my mind and just in terms of thinking about that intersection point and that there really is a deep one going both ways. So yeah, thank you for, for illustrating that. Gets my, gets my wheels a spinning. <laughs> good, um, good. That's where we need to be. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it just raises the question of, of what does working together look like? And, you know, all of that's kind of uncharted territory. I don't know if you've dabbled in that at all or have any off-the-cuff ideas on what that would mean and on what, what that could look like. I'm open well, to them. Well, by, by illustration, one of the things that's been interesting is we have served some women who came to us pregnant, and we don't specialize in maternity, and so we will partner with somebody in our community to offer them parenting classes and helping them navigate where they are. It's amazing to me how many of our women didn't even know these services existed. And I don't want to make it overly dramatic, but one of my observations about this population and sort of really trying to study is that so many of the women that we serve have lived a life of non-participation in what you and I would consider normal society. They, 94% of our population were molested as children. 70% came from fatherless homes, 87% came from substance abusing homes. Now, this has nothing to do with socioeconomics, but we're talking about an individual who from their childhood has lived two lives, their secret life, their secret abusive life, and to whatever extent, they're trying to fake it till they make it life. Most of our girls drop out of school by middle high school. So I think the challenge upon us is how do we break through that? How do we get a message to folks who are not participating in society in the same way that we are? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Pregnancy, uh, you know, and, and kind of everything surrounding well women care is a point of encounter that pregnancy centers, that clinics, that doctors, that that is really an open place of possibility, I guess, in terms of having that message go directly to the, the woman. I think it is. And at the same time, we have to understand that the exploited population is largely indoctrinated to not trust anybody in authority. And a doctor, a clinician, a social worker, a they're not to be trusted. And so there is, there's a barrier to overcome. So we can't just assume that everybody just naturally trusts a nurse. No, not necessarily. So we have to tackle that in perhaps some creative ways. I think some of the things that I've seen that are really creative is we know that the exploited population lives and breathes and dies connected to a phone. Traffickers will control their girls over the phone. They will give them instructions. They will hold them accountable. It, it really is the tether between the exploiter and the victim. Well, that's our channel. Mm-hmm. Are we doing enough to reach them somehow through the phone, through what they have access to on the phone? Is that apps? Is that the web? You know, what, let's be creative. Let's think outside of the box. It's not going to be that she's going to drive down the road and see a billboard necessarily. There are some interesting things done, being done in our sector where they are putting messages for help services on the wrappers on bars of soap in hotel rooms. It's a creative solution. 
So I think we have to be challenged to, one, understand this population and the dynamics of exploitation, and then see where are the openings for our message. Yeah, absolutely. Can I ask while we're on the topic of phones, this is a little bit of a different direction, um, how you're kind of knowing that that's a tether, how your program handles phones. It's a hot topic in our world, you know, programs are trying all sorts of different things. (laughs) It is a hot topic in my world. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we have a very clean policy. The policy is none. Okay. Yeah, it's clean. Um, we, we say you will not have a personal phone while you're in this program, and that's a choice. Um, it's not punitive. It's not heavy-handed. It's a choice. And so a woman has to say, okay, do I want to accept those terms or do I not? And you know what's interesting is now, years in, to have the women who've moved on to the graduate program, and once they move into the graduate program, they can certainly have a phone because it's independent living with a supportive and accountable community, um, but they can have a phone. How many of our women use the phone so much more wisely and they can draw boundaries and they can not be as swayed by every stimuli that comes at them it's really been rewarding to see. And in fact, you'll, you know, we get to hear women say, gosh, I, you know what, Miss Jean, I actually read a book. I read a book. And I went, okay, that's, that's good. And she goes, yeah, but normally I'd be on my phone, you know, and as a former English teacher, I go into the other room and I'm like doing a little happy dance because she read a book. <laughs> so that's been our policy um, since about a year in. Uh, I had a police officer tell me that the phone was the portal to hell, and I said, okay, well, then we're not doing that, and it has served us well, but to your point, not without controversy. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, homes are trying all sorts of various things, you know, both the idea of teaching proper phone use versus eliminating it entirely, so it's curious to to hear what your take on that was. Can you talk us through... Well, it works for us. It works for us, and so I think... Are the moms resistant? Is there resistance? Um, actually, there really hasn't been. I would say in the last 12 years, we've probably had two women who have tried to sneak a phone in. And, um, you know, they know the rules. And so we don't. But it really has not been as much of a problem. I think if anything, and this might be a little generational, you know, for those who have grown up with the idea of a personal phone, um, so our younger survivors, uh, it takes them a while to detox. And that's been an interesting thing to observe as well. For example, in the area of socialization, largely our women who have grown up with the idea that they have their private universe through the phone have a harder time socializing with their peer group. And so that, that just requires a bit more investment on our part. Yeah, just in terms of entering into that that relationship, building it. Is that is that what you mean? I mean, how do you have a conversation with people at the dinner table? Right. Okay. How how, how do you sit and watch a movie together and interact with each other instead of people who aren't there? And that takes some practice uh, because their practice has been not to engage with the people who are right in front of them, and we consider that to be vital to their spiritual health to their relational health, that you need to develop relational skills 
And oftentimes they need to be mastered with the people who are right in front of you um, because you have less control. And so you have to be more give and take. You know, if you're on the phone with me, I can always cut you off. But if you're right in front of me, I got to deal with you. And we find that our women have, again, specifically the younger uh, women that we've served, have not developed those relational skills of drawing boundaries. They don't ever turn their phone off, for example, which means that the person who is constantly cussing at them and calling them names, it never stops. But she doesn't realize that she has the authority to stop that abusive behavior. And it's incredibly empowering for her to say, I have not only the authority, but I also have the control to stop that abusive behavior. And it's as easy as turning off my phone. It's powerful. Yeah, great example. Are there other things like that? So, you know, things that are specific to the world of trafficking that then, you know, when you go into a, your, your restorative care program, you have, you know, your program has made specific decisions around them because of how it lived, got lived out in the trafficking world. So, yeah, you know, I would say did, another did, one that falls in that realm of it confuses people when you first talk about it. So I'll try to be clear. Um, we do not ask our women their story. And we live in a culture where people are always saying, you know, tell me your story, tell me your story. Um, we don't do that. And that's by intention. One, we have realized that some of the women who cross our threshold, that's all they have left. And it is presumptuous, if not cruel, for us to assume we get to take that too. So we don't require or invite that a woman tell us her story. And oftentimes that means the depths of her trauma. Now, certainly once she's in a therapeutic relationship, what she chooses to do with that is her decision. But it is not prerequisite to being in the program and it's not part of our day-to-day. We stay very focused on what's the new life that you're aspiring to have. So we have very much a 90-10. 90% of your energy should be spent on your new life and 10% might be spent on dealing with what still hurts or what still has what we call sort of trauma residue from your old life. And so we're very much a push forward organization. That's not to say we ignore the past, but we're not camping there because that has proven to be incredibly unhealthy to just have to rehearse that over and over and over again. You know, the people in trauma circles say it's, it's re-traumatizing to have to do that. So we become very careful about making sure that in our intake process, when they're meeting with a therapist, when they're engaging with new staff or volunteers, that there is not an expectation that that woman has to give you something of herself, namely her story, in order to be in relationship with you. So we train our staff to just meet her where she is. And I will tell you that some of our best staff in working with this population are those who come in and just deal with her as she presents in the moment and doesn't presume anything. And they find a freshness to that. They find a liberation to that. Oh my gosh, she just liked me because I was good in art class. Yeah, that's enough. And for yeah. that relationship, that's enough. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it speaks to, you know, within our world, this kind of dynamic, we see that the situations of the women are growing more complex. 
you know, our gut response of that is to get clinical and, you know, use clinical skills. And yet I hear you saying, you know, just the people that show up and be in relationship with them and, you know, in just a really natural human way are, I mean, that that is healing in and of itself. And I think it speaks to at least the tension we feel like this whole kind of professionalization, clinical staff kind of dynamic. And then, you know, we came out of a movement where it was just good people showing up and welcoming women and, you know, starting to, to do their best by them, you know, so that we have, we kind of live in that space. And it, to me, it really is an interesting, you know, the professional competency is important, right? These things that you're talking about are really important. And yet it is enough just to show up and be in relationship with them. And here's where we land. We stay entirely focused on what's the world she's going, that we hope she's going into. In the real world, so let's put that in air quotes, right? In the real world, she does not have 37 therapists. In the real world, she has 37 people who just deal with her as she is as a human being, and she might have one therapist. So we try to model that from day one that there are people who are going to come into her life and all they are are the math tutor. That's it. They don't need to hear about how many men you've slept with, right? They're just a math tutor. And how do we teach relationships in that respect that they don't have to, you know, so for your listeners, one of the things that I think is a tenant to victims of trafficking is they are largely taught to have no boundaries because they often have to be whoever the client wants them to be. They often are paid, perhaps incrementally, to do whatever the client wants. And so her boundaries are irrelevant. And so we have to come in and help her reclaim boundaries and help her realize that she has dignity and worth and that is that is worthy of asserting her own boundaries. And so if all she does with the art teacher is paint, that is an acceptable and reasonable boundary. And so that's a big part of the way we try to get people to engage, which to your point, those people who just show up, we say then just show up and be authentically who you are and receive her as she is today and leave the clinical to the clinical, right? Just as we leave the medical to the medical. Most of us are not running around saying, can I do an exam? Like, that's just wrong and inappropriate. (laughs) But to your point, there are a lot of people who think that they, like, should somehow straddle the mental health or clinical. And they don't realize the value of just being relational. Oh, you've gotten me off on such a tangent. Thanks so much. No, I love that tangent. Wow, that was fantastic. (laughs) Uh, Can I ask about intakes just quickly, too? I know it's, again, homes kind of as they learn more about trauma from care, reevaluating their intakes and trying to think about them differently. You know, and the baseline that's talked about is like issues of safety, you know, ask about issues of safety. So for the well-being of others in the home kind of idea. Can you maybe just speak briefly about your intake process and what that looks like? Sure. And let me answer in in two prongs because you said something about the safety of others. So I want to pick up on that as well. So our intake process is uh, basically a multi-step phase. So we'll get an inquiry from somebody, you know, so let's say somebody in law enforcement from Kansas calls us and says, do you have a bed? And then we have a process by which we learn uh, a bit more about this candidate and we'll interview her. Uh, We actually have a survivor who does all of our intake interviews because they have a 
conversation all their own. Um, we might talk to anybody else who is associated with her. If she has a caseworker or somebody, we might get additional information there just so we have an idea of what her needs are going to be. Once a decision is made for her to come to our program and we've worked out relocation, then when she arrives, we will do a more detailed intake process that involves a lot of baseline questions, certainly a drug test to ensure sobriety. Uh, we might do a pregnancy test just to see. And so we get, we get a sense, but then we move her into orientation into the, into the household. And so for us, the intake process it can take anywhere from, I would say, four to four days to, gosh, it can take a couple of weeks depending upon where she is. So, for example, sometimes we will get a phone call from Department of Corrections and they will say, so-and-so is about to be released. You know, we, we're lining up her next move. And so in those cases, we are dependent upon her release date uh, for her to come to us. So that can change our timeline. But I want to speak about safety because I think one of the things that media has done a disservice to us is create a hyper-reality. And hear me, I'm not saying in any way that these women have not experienced danger, nor are some of them still in danger. That is true. But we did a study that earlier this year asking residential homes across the United States, how often they have experienced a nefarious person coming onto the property, you know, in search of a client. And by wide swath, it does not happen. Maybe 3% have they ever experienced this, this idea that bad guys in the bushes, if you know what I mean. Now, that doesn't mean that we become careless or reckless. What we have to understand at least what I'm encouraging us to think about more broadly, is that threat for this population, it's largely within, not without. My experience is that this population is more a danger to themselves than outside persons are to them because pimps are basically lazy. After all, somebody else is doing all the work. And so it is less likely that she is the only girl in the world that he can convince to do this. And we will hear from traffickers that it is easier to go get another than to go risk exposure for him or for her, because traffickers can be female, to come get this one woman. She's, she's, frankly, she's not the only commodity available, if you know what I mean. The danger, and I think where we have to think about security more intelligently, is her likelihood that she is still bound to that individual emotionally, relationally. For what we find statistically is that minors, particularly minors under the age of 13, are more likely to run away from placement back to their trafficker because it's a relational bond. Because if that's the parent figure that they have been searching for, they are going back to that parent figure. If that's my boyfriend, if that's the man who loves me, if that's baby daddy, she's more likely to be a risk to herself in going back to them than they are to coming to get her. Can you follow me on this? Yeah. So we have to think about safety differently. And for us, the interventions have less to do with physical security of the property and more to do with her believing that she is now safe within. 
we probably 50% of our population are cutters. And so that is an example of not feeling safe within. That's not an external person coming and cutting her. That's her being a danger to herself. Some people look at substance abuse the same way, that that is a self-harming behavior. So too, continuing to go back to the man that beats you, you could argue that that's a self-harming behavior. So that's what we're trying to attend to is how is she not safe within after we have mitigated all of the environmental safety concerns. So I realize that sort of flips people's perceptions on their ear, but that's our experience. No, I, I resonate with that a lot. Yeah, so thank you for, for sharing your expertise. Maybe as one final question, I, if homes are, are there phrases or language or terms that if moms are saying those things, it's probably an indication there was trafficking in her life. Could you kind of just expose us to what some of that, the language of, of trafficking is? Well, I would say with the caveat that the, whatever I'm going to say is maybe relevant today, but not tomorrow, because it's very dynamic and fluid. And frankly, the minute that us squares are onto the language, it's going to change. So first of all, you're a square, because if you're not an exploited person, you're a square. Okay? You're vanilla. Sorry, you are. Um, <laughs> or at least I'm assuming. I think some of the things that you might listen for today would be if she talks about working and it's not the way you traditionally view work. She's not going to come right out and say prostitution. She might. She might. She might say talking to. I was just talking to this guy. Well, in today's vernacular, talking to means having sex with. So that's just not what it meant in my generation. <laughs> so I'm just talking to so-and-so. I'm just talking to so-and-so. In some cases, that can me. that's my dude. That's my, she's not going to say pimp. She might say daddy. She might say baby daddy. Um, she might say dude. It depends on what part of the country she comes from. I think one of the things that would be a listening skill for people in maternity homes would be the relationship to money. And if there's a great deal of anxiousness around income and worth being tied to money, certainly if you hear things like money maker, money machine, she's money, she points at parts of her body and says that's money, um, that would be a real good indication that she's at least in that culture. So those are just some quick examples. You mentioned that there's a high recidivism rate and, um, you know, and we're new into this work. And I feel like maternity homes are feeling that same, like she comes so far, all these great things happen, you know, she's been stable and, and have that same sense of the challenges of kind of once she's on her own, um, having that maintained. Maybe just a message of what have you learned and how do you stay like passionate and in it when that's that's the reality that you face just as a closing thought, kind of how you keep the fire, you know, alive in this really challenging, messy, you know, it's the ugly side of humanity as well as the beautiful side um, of, yeah. of it all. I count now as a blessing how stubborn God has made me. Um, so now I realize that it has purpose. It's irritated a lot of people over the years, but now I understand that God can use that. And I would say that it was 
extremely hard in the beginning. You know, when we were seeing 70% attrition of girls just blowing out of the program and we're thinking, well, we're not doing enough. What are we doing? We're doing it wrong. Instead of being where we are now, where we very much see that we are part of a larger process. We are not the answer. And that has been liberating for me. Um, and I would say with, with my colleagues, you are not the answer. You are not Jesus. In, in all that, frankly, we, we conjure up about that, um, that you are part of a process, you know, some plant, some water, some harvest. And if we're a part of the watering phase, well, do that and do that with excellence. And then trust that the rest of the process will play out the way it's supposed to. It has been helpful to borrow from domestic violence and understand what they've learned as forerunners about the emotional bonds and the relational bonds with people who are abusive. And for us to say, okay, well, if, if they say seven times, then we should at least imagine that that's possible in what we do. So that's where I think there's great value in maternity homes and DV and HT all talking to each other and saying, how can we learn from each other? How can we share in lament? about how hard this work is. There is not a woman that has crossed our threshold who has not broken our heart in some way. But the heart breaking has a purpose. It keeps us supple. It keeps us ready to receive. Um, it keeps us open to possibilities. I try to tell staff now that one of the things that we have to do is you have to just be okay being wounded. It's a weird, if you, not everybody can go there and say, okay, well, I'm just going to be okay with an open wound. I think that's, that's part of being selected for this work is, are you okay, are you okay just sharing in Christ's sufferings? For as long as that takes, are you okay with that? And some people will say, nope, I'm out of here. I want closure. I want accomplishment. I want statistics. And there will be other people who will say, yeah, I'm, I'm just okay, as you said earlier, just being present, because frankly, that's all I have. That's what has been for me. It's all I have is, is to be present. I'll tell you just a quick illustration. Literally a day ago, um, one of our gals got in contact with me, and she had had a really extreme cutting episode. And I walk into this room, and she's in a pile on the floor, and there's blood everywhere. And I thought... I do not have an EMT response. I do not have a psychologist response. She called me. So I have to leverage what I have, which is just be with her. And we spent four hours together. And it's what she wanted and it's what she needed because that's what she reached out for. And I have to walk away from that situation and say, yeah, I can either say there are a thousand other ways I could have handled it, but I handled it the way it played out, which was that's who she called. So that's what she needed. Do you understand that? Yeah, absolutely. And be okay with that. Absolutely. Um, I think that really speaks to, to me, that's just the reality of it, of the work and um, and in a hopeful way, but in a way that is based and grounded in reality. So yeah, very grateful for that. Just grateful for your time. I learned so much um, in this conversation and uh, can, pushes me to dig a little deeper and learn a little bit more. So, and I suspect others will say the same. If folks wanted to connect um, with your program or with you, is there a website or a way that you'd suggest? Yes, you can either go to the Samaritan Women, and that's plural, 
www.instituteforeshelteredeath.org or you can go to instituteforsheltercare.org. They'll both take you to the same place and we have resources there about what we do and uh, we would love to connect with folks to share and learn together because we really just are on the front end of this journey. Yeah, I feel like um, although maternity homes have been around for a while, we're in a new season ourselves, and it is interesting and fun to find fellow journeyers in that journey. So thank you so much for your time. Super grateful. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pregnancy Help Podcast. To subscribe to future episodes, access resources related to today's session, or listen to previous episodes, visit www.heartbeatinternational.org slash podcast. Thanks for tuning in.